As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Michael, I am really excited for today's episode, but first, can I share something else that I'm excited with you about? Yeah, let's hear it. All right. Well, as you know, one of the most popular parts of our conference, Industry the Product Conference, is our workshop day. Uh, Last year, we hosted four different workshops with some of the top product management practitioners and coaches, and we sold out every single spot weeks in advance. And this week, we just launched industry virtual workshop. So the same interactive workshops, they're limited, you know, not a lot of people so you could interact with your facilitator, but now you can enjoy them right from your home office. And I want to share more about these later in the episode, but if you want to get a head start, they could go to bit.ly slash industry virtual workshops. Again, bit.ly slash industry virtual workshop. Well, I can't wait to dig in and learn about, you know, who's teaching these. Well, I think people are going to hear some familiar names, but yes, more on that later. (laughs) 
Okay, so today I wanted to talk about a beloved social network app that felt very relevant to what's happening to us all today. Yeah, I'm guessing because we're all quarantined. Yep, quarantined with our social networks, uh, which have largely proven to make us miserable. (laughs) Well, there was once a social network that was trying to change that, right? Yeah, the much beloved Path, which was founded by Dave Morin, who was a former exec from Facebook who left the company in 2010 to focus on connecting people in a more meaningful way. But I'm guessing because we're talking about it, it didn't quite work out. Well, they're actually huge in Jakarta. But other (laughs) than that, no, they they did have kind of a fascinating half-decade run, and we're going to dive into that today. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. So Path was created in 2010 by former Facebook exec Dave Morin as a sort of anti-Facebook. It stood out with with one unique idea. It limits the number of friends that you have. It was often called the 150-person social network. And so in the beginning, you couldn't even add more than 50 people to your network when it first launched. When we were starting, you know, we were really focused on this notion that we don't want to build anything that... Um, is for, the, for public uh, use cases. We wanted to focus on 150, people having 150 friends or less. Um, and what are all of the use cases that exist inside of there? And you know, we thought about different technologies in the beginning. We used databases that nobody else was using at the time. We were one of the largest installations of Mongo um, in the very beginning. Um, you know, because we wanted to store the graph in like a, a better way. As Facebook ballooned in size and our friend lists grew with it, Path sought to be the place where you chatted with only the people you were closest to. Yeah, from the beginning, it had huge support from Silicon Valley, mainly due to the pedigree of Morin himself. He has worked for Apple and Facebook. Here's uh, actually a clip from Sarah Lacey talking with Morin in a fireside chat in 2012-ish. You came out here and you have quite an entrepreneurial family pedigree. Um, your grandfather was one of the Filene's Basement founders, yeah. is that right? Yep. And um, you moved out here, wanted to work in tech, wanted to start something, wanted to have this great background, so you went to Apple, and then you were early days at Facebook. I mean, it's hard to imagine a better pedigree. Go off on your own. Everyone thinks, you know, turns their attention to this. Ashton Kutcher is tweeting about Pat before he gets it. Everyone's paying attention, great investors. Comes out, nobody uses it. (laughs) 10,000 people used it. Was it 10,000? Because TechCrunch yeah. reported hundreds of thousands. Well, they were it was about 10,000 um, DAU. So we had hundreds of thousands of total registered users, but mm-hmm. we only had about 10,000 DAU for most of the year. So, yeah, I mean, it was broadly uh, failure. Well, I guess he's honest. Yeah. In the beginning, they built a lot of, let's call them antiviral elements, right? It restricted the friends list, for instance, to that 50 number. And you couldn't put up a post that half a million people would see because it just wasn't built to spread. Yeah. I mean, it was restricted to those 50 connections and there really wasn't even a way for them to spread it. Yeah. It was perfectly designed for private connections and conversations. Which is a bit of what we kind of see happening today on like Telegram or Discord. But even those networks have fewer restrictions. Yeah. And it's worth mentioning, this was a beautifully designed app too, which it really set it apart at the time uh, because it just felt 
different than your Facebooks or, or your Twitters. So here's Morin again talking about the early version of the product. I was an economics major, so there's this illiquid market of mm -hmm. photos um, and data on all these phones, and it's not being shared. And that was really interesting. And so we've been really focused on this idea of creating a, a trusted place to share, sort of a more intimate place to share. And yeah, when we launched it, we actually had a lot of, um, most of us were from the web era. I spent a lot of time at Facebook, my co-founder Dustin, mostly built desktop software. Um, Sean Fanning, our third co-founder, most of the things he's built have been on the web. Mm -hmm. um, so none of us really knew what we were doing with mobile at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so a lot of what we did with this first version was, you know, we, we were getting fancy with different network models and we were creating different flows for capturing photos and adding tags to them. And there were like lots of complicated steps. And, mm -hmm. you know, we were like, Ooh, we're going to put this cool tag in here. That's called thing. And it's going to be for some future advertising customer that we don't have yet. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, we just made a lot of bad decisions. And did you over bake the product? Definitely. Cause that was another yeah. criticism is that yeah. you leave Facebook it's a huge announcement. We don't hear from you for a long time. Yeah, I, well, I think we overthought a lot of things and we wanted to build this company that was entirely focused on mobile. And um, we just like made a lot of sort of mistakes in terms of how we structured that first product. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, it certainly wasn't as successful as we wanted it to be. You know, like I went out to New York and I talked to like all the reporters and we launched it in a very big way. And mm -hmm. um, it probably was a little bit ahead of itself. This was a theme that kept coming up. We have a seasoned team building path and their CEO has experienced this historic rise of Facebook. And he, when they left, they had over a billion users. And so he wanted to be ready when path inevitably took off. So they spent a ton of time instead of a slow launch to learn from the market to build out complex data structures that they anticipated needing for a future advertising business. An advertising business that really needed scale to even have potential. So here's Dave Morin again from a 2011 conversation with Jason Kalkanis. The product had a lot of conceptual things in it that were um, really interesting, but you know, some of them added more friction than some people liked. Um, Such as? Uh, we had, we tried to innovate around tagging. So right. we uh, had people tags and place tags, and we also had this tag we called a thing, which right. um, was really sort of focused on you know, people, we were noticing that people were taking a lot of photos of food and things like that. And right. so the idea was sort of, well, give people another tag type that, right. um, you know, enables them to tag the food in a restaurant or, you know, these types of things. And so we tried to build that and it was location based and it had a bunch of fancy things in it. But the reality was that it was just kind of too complicated for people yeah. and um, people were breaking it and some people didn't like it. And, and I think it just generally, it too. yeah, a lot of hacking going yeah. on. People were either using it for Titles. Uh, titles or other 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 uses. So why did you, when you look back on it, adding that feature, did you overthink it? Was that the mistake? Yeah, I think I would actually go a little bit further to say that, you know, I think we maybe overthought it, um, but I also think that we focused more on uh, the, the business mm -hmm. rather than the user. Um, ah. We built a lot of those structured data features around you know, oh, well, someday maybe we'll get into the advertising market. Right. You know? And you'll It'd want be great all the to pizza. have all this structured yeah. data, right? Yeah. And somewhere halfway through building 2.0, we kind of realized this that, um, you know, there was very little user value in adding more friction there. Right. And so um, let's just take it out because um, at the end of the day, 
you know, users just are trying to put these really important moments of their lives into this um, network that's really meaningful to them. And we're, we were just getting in their way. And so um, pulling that out, I think, was was another big thing. This idea of a private social network, this feels almost a decade too early. Absolutely, right? This was well before the criticism of modern social networks became mainstream in just you know, really the last year or two. Here was an iPhone-only social network that initially limited your connections to 50 people, which is the number of really close connections that we're able to maintain at any given time. Yeah, and speak for yourself. I have like two close friends, period. <laughs> and even that number of 50, that's different than Dunbar's number of 150, which is the number that British anthropologist Robin Dunbar famously assigned as the maximum number of connections we're able to maintain. But it wasn't all bad for PATH, right? They did start to find their footing. That and more after a quick break. So it wasn't all bad news for PATH. Right, this isn't like a color story where they were doomed from the beginning, but they held true to their vision and people did start to catch on to the benefits of a private social network. Yeah, in fact, by mid-2013, Morin proclaimed that people were checking the app over 1 billion times per month, and it caught the eye of a company that we've covered in this series before, Google. Right, but Morin, he turned down a $125 million offer from Google to stay focused on solving their core problem. Facebook was sort of keeping the company focused on this longer term thing. Mm -hmm. And I think in Silicon Valley today, there's you get a lot of pressure. And Dustin, actually, I think he talked about this on stage, too, I mm -hmm. think w whenever he was doing that interview. Just that there's a lot of short term thinking right now where it's like, you know, build up a little company, sell it to, you know, there's like a bunch of big buyers right now, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's certainly one way you can go and there's nothing wrong with it, right? Like if you want to do that, sure, go for it, right? I, I have no opinion against you on that, but I think that there's room in the market for true long-term innovation, right? Where you focus on an idea, a problem set, and you really try to get through it and innovate and build things like that take a while, right? And um, at PATH, we've always wanted to do that. You know, we really wanted to, like this problem we're trying to solve of getting people connected to the right people all the time, where you feel like you can trust it, that, you know, you're connected to your family first and then your closest friends. And it's this place where when that app icon comes forward, you feel like you can trust it and the design. And there's all these little things that go into this. Um, you know, if we had sort of uh, launched it and then we got 10,000 users and, you know, um, no matter who came along and said, you know, we want to buy you or you should stop, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, then you're just sort of giving up and you're not sort of staying true to your vision, right? Like, I, I, I really believe that when you start a company, you generally have some kind of a vision, right? Like, you, you, you see something, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you wouldn't start a company if you didn't see something Hopefully. out there, right? And oftentimes, the, the process of getting to that is just kind of, um, going through the failure and kind of living in it and trying mm -hmm. to figure out what the lessons are and what the signals are and what are people trying to do with the product and sort of unlocking it as much as you can. Um, and, you know, stopping super early just seems like you would, you would have spent all this time building up a company that, um, you know, is... Uh, the first year, I mean, you know this, you're going through it right now. The first year of building a startup is like really hard right we've been live two months and it feels like two years yeah and it's like there's little things like you know you have to get 
toilet paper for the bathroom, yeah. you know, and you have to uh, pay people's paychecks and you have to raise money and you have to build the product and there's like all these things and you have to figure out if you're getting along with your co-founders and, you know, there's like all these things yeah. that happen in the first year, which are like, you know, to sort of like get it all together and like on the path to where you can even launch a product, mm -hmm. like that's even hard to get through, mm -hmm. right? Um, a lot of startups I'm fall... I'm getting funding. Yeah. It's hard to get Yeah, it. and it's like a lot of startups fall apart before they even get there, mm -hmm. right? And, and so the way I look at it is like every month you keep going, it's like the, the amount of time you've spent getting to that point is like what you would sacrifice if you were to quit or sell or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and there's a lot of opt-in value there, right? Like mm -hmm. you've got an organization, you've got ideas, you've got vision, you've got people that are sort of there working with you, right? And so the opportunity to keep going, I think, um, is a hard one to get, mm -hmm. right? Like it takes a lot of work to even get to any vantage point that you're at, right? right. And um, you can, of course, always look at the downside, right? Which is like, well, you know, if, if this, that, or that other thing happened, maybe the company fails and all this stuff. But I, th I think at the end, you just have to believe in yourself and like keep going um, mm -hmm. and participate in the process. And, you know, I think for us, um, look, we've only been doing this for two years or whatever, and we want to build this thing for family that everyone in the world has a family. So despite this altruistic spirit that drove the company, they weren't without fault. In February of 2012, the company was widely criticized after concerns that they were accessing and storing user phone contacts without knowledge or permission. In a blog post by the CEO, the company later apologized and changed its practices. Morin wrote, we're sorry, and we've deleted your address book data in an announcement from the company that they had deleted all the unauthorized data they'd collected from their users. Yeah, here's Morin talking about the controversy. The interesting thing was um, we had actually launched uh, the, uh, a different, a better version of this the week before mm -hmm. on Android. And we were actually working towards shipping it on an iPhone on mm -hmm. a Friday mm -hmm. and that hit on a Thursday. Mm -hmm. And so we actually were, we knew this was something that, um, what was the better happen. version? Uh, the better version was just in Android. They have a single authentication dialogue where when you um, install the app, you can ask for a bunch of permissions. And so they've they've sort of made it all one dialogue. Mm -hmm. Apple's the other way, which is um, many dialogues of confirmation. Um, and so the, uh, the Android way, we had already shipped, and it was all good. On the iPhone, actually, there was no precedent for this, um, and there were no dialogues or anything, so we were just designing our own. Um, and so we were, we were about to ship it, which was kind of the bummer thing. Um, but so I guess my reaction was, all right, we better ship it like now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I think I should rewind and just say, you know, the reason why we designed it this way was not for any nefarious intent or anything like that. Um, we designed it this way because at PATH, our sort of highest order bit is simplicity. Like you've heard me talk about it now a lot. Um, and what we wanted to what we wanted to do with path was to connect people to the right people on the network not just any people mm -hmm. so most social applications you know you join and it's like welcome to insert name here um here's a friend finder for you to find your friends and to connect to your right. friends on the network and um if we sort of provided people with a general friend finder then the graph would be constructed in a way that's very generic and would map to the same graph that you know, every other social app that came before it. Mm -hmm. And so we had actually developed an algorithm um, 
<clears throat> which could look at Facebook data and, and contact data and try to guess who we think your family is and who your close friends are. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, uh, and then so that was the, that was the goal is to make our new user experience magical where as soon as you join and you type in, you know, first name, last name, put in a photo, the very next screen you would see a list of people that um, are either on the network or that you should invite mm -hmm. um, who uh, are the right people. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's, that's the experience we were designing. Mm -hmm. And um, like I said, there was actually no precedent for, you know, um, this particular type of data. Um, and so, you know, we didn't have an opt-in. We just did what right. everyone else was doing, which when you were doesn't make it the right thing, right. right? But when you were developing it, was there was there discussion inside the company of this is this might freak people out? Should we do this? Should we not do this? No, I mean, it, that, that's the thing is that it, it was just sort of like the way the industry, everybody was doing it. And so it was just one of those things where we just did what we've done before, right? Like, mm -hmm. and so it wasn't one of the, there was no conversation. Um, and it was just like, that's how you implement this feature, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, that's the answer. Later in March of 2012, the company then received a request for information from two congressmen, along with 33 other app developers, asking them to detail what information they collect from users and how they use it. Now there was one last critical mistake that PATH made that ultimately led to it shutting its doors. And we're going to talk about that after this quick break. So we're talking about some of the mistakes that PATH made in their early days, but let's fast forward to 2015 when they've hit a ceiling in their growth and are looking for a path forward. <laughs> that was pretty bad, Michael. Okay. Yeah, it was. But So PATH has around 10 million active users, but that number wasn't growing and honestly pales in comparison to like the Instagrams or the Facebooks. Yeah, but Morin did see a data point that he was interested in. I made this decision to... You know, we, we ended up with a bunch of growth in Southeast Asia. Um, and I'd played enough risk against Mark Zuckerberg uh, <laughs> while I worked at Facebook to know that I needed at least one country. Um, and I made this... In risk, you always got to win Australia. Mark, like, so. attacks every country at once all the time. Um, and... Um, so we made this decision. You know, we saw a growth curve that looked right. Which, when you're doing these social systems, it's always important when you, when you see that take advantage of it. And we made a decision because we thought, okay, Southeast Asia, 250 million people, same size as the United States, fastest growing mobile market in the world, uh, more mobile phones happening there than anywhere else. Clearly it's like next after the brick, right? Mm -hmm. So after Brazil, Russia, India, China, Indonesia, maybe Mexico, maybe Turkey, maybe Nigeria, these are like probably the countries, yeah. but Indonesia is like the largest. Okay. And so we were like, okay, if we can seal up Indonesia, like, then maybe we'll be in position to leverage that into like adjacent markets, um, which was, as you know, something yeah. we did a lot of at Facebook. We would see massive growth in Turkey or Italy, and then we'd, we'd go adjacent, you know? Uh, and so I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. And we did it, you know? Path to this day is still, I think, the number one social network in the top two classes of Indonesia. So all wow. the people that have, uh, you know, the resources uh, to use it uh, and potentially be monetized. Um, I think it was, the reason I sort of dwell on this is that I think that it was the wrong decision strategically um, because ultimately those users ended up weighing down the system and weighing down our resources and we burned a lot of capital trying to build out that 
portion of the network, and we were too early. I think that like probably if it was at scale next year, mm -hmm. we would have been uh, you know in a position to monetize. But when we got to our series, I guess it was Series D, and I was out there, you know, going to Jakarta and Singapore, and I'm like in bars in Jakarta, being like, "How did this small town guy from Montana end up in Jakarta?" <laughs> um, we just couldn't find the capital that we needed to continue to scale the scale the company. And, and the reason why is we, we, we couldn't monetize. We were too yeah. early. We were at scale, but we were too early. You know, Indonesia's average um, income per capita for like the bottom three classes is like less than a dollar, you know? Oh. So it's, it's really, really hard to monetize there. And, uh, you know, that became a pretty hard lesson. So yeah, I could tell a bunch of other yeah. like minor lessons, but that one was like a pretty big strategic thing where I kind of now tell people like you should be really like, if you're doing anything in social, like, lock it down to the United States and, like, figure out how you, you know, figure out your distribution yep. um, before you try to go other places because you can end up with a bunch of users that are not paying rent in your building um, that are kind of holding things down while you're trying to figure out how the heck you're going to monetize elsewhere. So ultimately, they were only able to find significant traction in a market that was unmonetizable, at least in a meaningful way for a U.S.-based company. So Path lived on post-acquisition by South Korea's Dom Kakao, the Korean internet communications giant, for about a year, but was ultimately shut down. And that's really it for the story of the beloved Path. Dave Morin is now investing under the Slow Ventures moniker, and he's even floated the idea a couple times of bringing Path back, now that our sentiments have kind of caught up around social networking. Yeah, and we'll see about that, I guess. I mean, I could see it making its return at some point, but obviously probably needs a little bit more time. Yeah, yeah. So you said that we were going to catch up more about these industry workshops. Ah, yeah. Well, okay. So let's face it. Industry, our conference, it's six months away, but let's face it. I mean, we know nobody is thinking of doing anything in person right now. It's probably the last thing on our minds. At least it, it should be, right? Um, hopefully everybody is staying safe in their homes. Um, but at the same time, like there are still folks out there who are craving product management education and want to keep learning about certain topics that they feel they need to level up on. So we thought it was about time that we bring the workshop to them. Like, to their homes? Well, sort of. I mean, for the first time ever, we're launching the first slate of virtual workshops, which yes, can be enjoyed right from your home office. And they're not just webinars, like these are live, interactive, small group workshops with some of the top facilitators that we've ever worked with at industry. Um, so the same kind of interaction you'd have in person, um, whether it's asking a question right on the spot or even working together in small group breakout sessions, You'll have that with these virtual workshops. Um, we limit the number of participants to make this this you know intimate and kind of interactive experience. That is really cool. And yes, right now it's also something that's needed. It's true. Some people might have more important things on your mind. I get it, right? But there's a lot of us who are still trying to level up um, and improve our product skills, even in this kind of downtime. And so this could be the perfect opportunity to do that. So you mentioned that these involve some of the top facilitators you've ever worked with, like. Who? Well, there's Rich Miranov, and he literally wrote the book, The Art of Product Management. It was one of the first big product management books. And in early April, we have two separate workshops with Rich on moving up into product leadership. Um, first one we actually offered exclusively to past industry attendees, and it sold out in a day. Uh, but there's a few slots left for his second workshop, and we also just announced one with Gib Biddle. Um, Gib was the VP of product at Netflix, and he's leading a half-day workshop on product strategy. Very same workshop was actually the top-rated workshop at industry last year. 
Yeah, yeah, those all sound great, but I heard something about a past guest of Rocketship hosting a workshop as well. Yes, we actually have done a few episodes on jobs to be done and the whole jobs to be done framework on Rocketship, right? We've had co-architect of jobs to be done, Bob Mesta. He's actually putting on a couple of special workshops on jobs to be done. And these are probably going to sell out really quickly. Um, they're really limited and there's actually an application process for it. We're really excited about those. Oh, nice. That's awesome. A, a chance to learn jobs to be done from Bob himself. Whew, that's uh, that's quite the opportunity. And in a small group, you can actually dig in and ask him questions. That's not an opportunity that we get every day. I might just sign up for that one well i think you should but <laughs> there's another workshop we have planned with somebody else that's been on rocket ship a few hundred times oh yeah that's right um i'll actually be teaching a three-hour workshop on how to run a remote product team um that's something i've done at triple for a while and really throughout my career the last five years or so and it's kind of a hot topic now you know that everyone is literally at home and and working remote uh whether they want to or not so i thought a session like this could be helpful and rocket ship listeners can also benefit yeah for michael's session specifically the first five folks that use the code rocket ship will actually get to register for free um, and after the first few people, anybody else who uses that code, you'll save 25 bucks off your registration. So just make sure if you're signing up for that one, use the code Rocketship when you register. And where can people learn more about all of the upcoming workshops? Yeah, just go to bit.ly slash industry virtual workshops, all lowercase. Again, it's bit.ly slash industry virtual workshops. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll check that out. And we'll be back here next week with more product failure stories. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you could check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at productcollective.com.